Chapter 1 of A History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by Samuel Cheatham. Chapter 1 The Preparation of the World. It was in the fullness of time that the Son of God came into the world. By many influences the way had been prepared before him. That the unity of the empire and the general peace favored the passage of the first preachers of the gospel was long ago observed by Origen, and not only could an apostle pass from the borders of Persia to the English Channel unhindered by the feuds of hostile tribes, the barriers which varying culture raises up hardly existed among the more educated subjects of the empire. In every large town the Greek language was spoken, Greek modes of thought prevailed. Subtle links connected the Syrian apostle with the Greek philosopher. A morality not founded on blood relation had certainly come into existence. The Roman citizenship had been thrown open to nations which were not of Roman blood. Foreigners had been admitted by the Roman state to the highest civic honors. So signally were national distinctions obliterated under the empire that men of all nations and languages competed freely under the same political system for the highest honors of the state and of literature. The good Arielus and the great Trajan were Spaniards. Severus was an African. The leading jurists were of Oriental extraction. And at the same time, the old religions had lost much of their life and force. Probably, indeed, there never was a time when temples were more splendid or pagan worship more august than in the days when the Lord appeared on earth, but the educated classes at least had long ceased to believe in the ancient mythology as divine or authoritative. Livy sadly contrasted the ages of faith with his own age, which mocked at gods. Philosophers perhaps rarely denied in set terms the existence of deities, but they transformed the old half-human gods into shadows or abstractions. This transformation was, for the most part, the work of the Stoics. Acknowledging for themselves but one deity, pervading the universe and causing all phenomena, they were yet reluctant to destroy the religion of those who could not rise to this height of contemplation. They therefore laid it down that the ordinary divinities represented different forms of the manifestation of the One. The stars, the elements, the very fruits of the earth might be regarded as deities. Zeus is in this system no longer the president of the gods, but the ruling spirit or law of the universe, of which the subordinate gods represent different portions. Such explanations, however, though they might make it easy for a Stoic to take part in the religious ceremonies of his country, were nevertheless destructive of the old religion. And while the moral philosophers resolved the deities into abstractions, the physicists, like the elder Pliny, held that speculation about things outside the material universe, itself a deity, lay beyond their province altogether. In a word, the pagan faiths were undergoing a process of gradual destruction, though the people long clung to their traditional observances. But in truth, even in its palmy days, the worship of the Olympian deities supplied nothing to guide man through life or to console him in death. The pagan gods were deities of the tribe or the nation, not of the individual's soul. The Greek religion was for the Greek as a citizen. It was an artistic and elevated idealization of Greek life with its excellencies and its failings. So in Rome, 
the greater gods formed a glorified senate, while the religious ceremonies of the minor deities were interwoven with almost the whole life of a Roman. With this national conception of religion, the deification of the emperor was little more than a natural result of the Roman pride in the greatness of the empire, and at the same time the extension of the empire beyond the nation tended to obscure the old national deities. Roman statesmen were indeed anxious to maintain a religion, the baselessness of which they admitted, because they thought it a necessary prop for the state, but a people soon finds out that it is being governed by illusions, the skepticism of the rulers in time descends to the subjects. In the decay of the religions of Western Europe, the gods of Asia seem to offer more delightful mystery. In particular, the Egyptian legend of the suffering Osiris, originally a mere nature myth, was found comforting by men who sought in religion relief from suffering. And as the worship of Osiris was grateful to the wretched, so was that of the Persian sun-god Mithras to aspiring humanity. The unspotted god of light, who was engaged in a never-ceasing struggle against darkness, drew men's hearts to him as the sensuous Olympians had never done. Wherever the soldiers of the empire encamped, rude sculptures testified to the widespread worship of Mithras. The mysteries, too, came into greater prominence in the decay of Greek and Roman religion. Whatever their origin, there can be little doubt that in the mysteries of Demeter it was taught that the soul of man survived death, and that the initiated would enjoy the light and bliss of the underworld, while the faithless and abominable wallowed in misery. The hope of escaping the fate of the impious doubtless drew many to offer themselves for initiation. Dionysus, also originally a myth of the revival of the vine after the storms and frosts of winter, became in later times the representative and forerunner of man rising again to immortality. Cicero, in his day, declared that of all the excellent things to be found in Athens, the most precious were the mysteries, since in them men found not only the happiness in life, but hope in death. Yet they not seldom became centers of corruption, which rulers repressed and good men abhorred. The conceptions which were found, obscure and mixed with much evil in the mysteries, appeared in a purer form in Platonism. To Plato mainly is due the thought which took so deep root in after ages, that in the material world is but vanity, darkness, and decay. In the ideal world, reality, light, and life. In the Platonic school, we find a constant belief in one God, the ground of all existence, in the continued life of the soul, in rewards and punishments after death. And a new influence came into the Roman world through the Stoics, whose most famous teachers were not only Oriental, but Semitic. Such of these as lived on the confines or even within the borders of the Holy Land may have been in some degree influenced by the Jewish schools, though it was certainly not from them that they derived their main doctrines. In Seneca, St. Paul's contemporary, a Stoic much influenced by Plato, we find many expressions which sound like an echo or an anticipation of Christianity. When he describes this mortal life as a prelude to a better, when he speaks of the body as a prison and looks forward to the enjoyment of a diviner life when he is freed from it, when he urges that the body of one departed is but a fleeting form, and that he who is dead has passed into eternal peace, when he describes the departed soul as enjoying its freedom, contemplating from above the spectacle of nature and of human life, when he tells of the glorious light of heaven, 
we see that the thoughts of men's hearts were being prepared to receive in Christ the full assurance of those lofty hopes. But it is through Christ that these hopes, and much more than these, have become the heritage of humanity. Without him they would have remained but the pleasant fancies with which a few elevated souls comforted themselves in the distractions of the world. There are not wanting indications that man felt his need of some greater one to help and guide him. Let the soul have some one to revere, said Seneca, by whose influence even his secret thoughts may be purified. Happy he who can so reverence his ideal as to rule and fashion himself after him by the mere memory of him. But then, where was the pattern to be found? Each school depreciated the ideal with every other. The scheme of the Stoic wanted solidity. It was in Christ that the ideal was found, which all men might reverence and to which all men might aspire. And even among the heathen there was in the first century a kind of belief that a turning point in the history of the world had come. The Stoics held that the secular year was drawing to a close, that the course of the ages would soon begin to run over again. The ninth month ended with the death of Julius Caesar, and the month of Saturn, the Golden Age, was already returning. With the upper classes, this expectation was probably little more than a literary fancy, but the lower orders, who knew to their cost that they lived in an Iron Age, took such prophecies much more seriously. But the plot into which the seed of the word was first cast was Judaism. Signs were not wanting that the ancient garden of the Lord had lost something of its old fertility. Prophecy had ceased. From the days of Malachi to the days of John Baptist, no man had been recognized as a prophet of the Lord. But idolatry, against which so many prophets had protested in the name of Jehovah, was no more found in the land. Israelites still felt a thrill of pride at the name of the Maccabees. Their fathers had endured torture and death rather than suffer the Lord to be dishonored. The scriptures were expounded by a multitude of scribes and doctors, and hundreds of admiring disciples sat at their feet in the schools and the synagogues. The Jew, said Josephus, knows the law better than his own name. No doubt, they often use the words of the book as mere charms or amulets, but at least a verbal knowledge of the scriptures was widely diffused at the time when he came on earth, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. And there was among the Jews of Palestine a general expectation that Messiah would speedily come. The book of Daniel spoke of four kingdoms of the earth, the fourth, in spite of its iron teeth and brazen claws, trodden down by the kingdom of the saints. What was this but the iron empire of Rome overthrown by the kingdom of the Israelites? The readiness with which pretenders drew followers about him showed the excitement of the popular mind. The Jews of Palestine, in the apostolic age, were divided into parties. The Sadducees, the men of wealth and official dignity, were the conservatives of their time. They adhered to the old Mosaic law, and rejected all modern additions as innovations. The promises to the faithful people they regarded as belonging to this life and to their own land. They looked for no resurrection, no kingdom of God beyond the grave. They could not question, they probably regarded as theophanies the appearance of angels mentioned in the scriptures. But they believed in no heaven, no abiding world of angels and spirits, nor did they look for a pure and perfect kingdom of God on earth. Such opinions as these were no good preparation for the reception of the gospel of Christ. 
but the Sadducees, though wealthy and high in place, were comparatively few in number. The national party, the party which represented the pride of the Jew and his hatred of the Gentiles, was that of the Pharisees. Knowledge of the law, holiness according to the law, were their watchwords. Doubtless, too often their minds and their lives were filled with burdensome trivialities. They put the letter before the spirit of the law. Yet to them, mainly it is due that the belief in the world to come and the expectation of Messiah's kingdom took deep root in the minds of Israelites. They did not allow the noblest conception of Israel's future to fade out of memory. From the dark present they looked to a bright future. They made this future kingdom a household word among the people. Thus they laid throughout the land a train by which the fire might be kindled at the word of Christ. Of a converted Pharisee, we have a conspicuous instance in St. Paul. We can hardly imagine a converted Sadducee. The Essenes formed communities of their own in Palestine and Syria, in which they endeavored to reach a degree of ceremonial purity and a complete obedience to the law which was unattainable to the haunts of common life. If with the Pharisees ceremonial purity was a principal aim, with the Essenes it was an absorbing passion. The Pharisees were a sect, the Essenes were an order, they were formed into a religious brotherhood fenced about by minute and rigid rules, and carefully guarded from any contamination with the outer world. Jews as they were, their speculations took a Gnostic turn, and they guarded their peculiar tenets with Gnostic reserve. They avoided the temple sacrifices, they denied the resurrection of the body, and they appear to have cherished no messianic hopes. A counterpart to the Essenes of Palestine is found in the Therapeutae described by Philo in Egypt. The Samaritan occupied the borderland between the Jew and the Gentile. Theologically as geographically, he was the connecting link between the one and the other. Half Hebrew by race, half Israelite in his acceptance of a portion of the sacred canon, he held an anomalous position, shunning and shunned by the Jew, yet clinging to the same promises and looking forward to the same hopes. Even in Palestine, the Jews of higher rank received a tincture of Greek cultivation in the Maccabean family itself within a few years after the struggle with Antiochus. Imitators of Greek customs were found, and among the rabbis from Antogonus of Soko, who flourished about two centuries before Christ, to Gamaliel, the teacher of St. Paul, a taste for Greek literature was frequently manifested. Nevertheless, in the people of the law, and especially in the holy city, exclusiveness and hatred towards the stranger on the whole prevailed. The more fanatical rabbis excluded from eternal life those who loved the Greek learning. It was through the Jews of the dispersion that Hebrew and Greek thought were brought into some intimacy of contact. The Jews, said Strabo about the time of our Lord's birth, quote, have penetrated into every city, and you will not easily find a place in the empire where this tribe has not been admitted and become influential. In some cities they had a separate civil organization under their own alabarchs or ethnarchs. Everywhere, in spite of the Roman jealousy of private meetings or associations, they enjoyed complete freedom of worship. Where their means did not suffice for a synagogue, they at least fenced off some quiet spot, if possible by the side of a stream, to which they might retire for prayer. Where they were rich and numerous, as at Alexandria, 
they reared temples which rivalled the magnificent edifices of the Greeks. And out of Palestine the Jews were somewhat less Jewish. They adopted for the most part the Greek language, and conformed so far as they might to Gentile usages. The fact that they were removed from the constant view of the temple and the debasing associations which moved the Lord's wrath was not without its influence. It was easy to idealize a sanctuary which was not always before their eyes. Out of Palestine, the ceremonial portions of the Jewish law dropped a little out of sight, and the moral precepts were more regarded. In Alexandria, in particular, a very mixing bowl of European and Asiatic thought, Judaism attained a new development. The Greek translation of the scriptures, begun probably at Alexandria in the third century before Christ, is the great monument of the Hellenizing of the Jew. Through it, the thoughts of Hebrew prophets first became intelligible to the Gentile world, and probably to many among the Jews themselves. Similarly, Luther's translation of the Bible is said to have had a great effect upon the Jews of Germany, and it is evident that the Greek translators had breathed the air of Hellenism and endeavored to adapt the simplicity of the scriptural expressions to the Alexandrian tone of thought. But besides the slight changes of the text which were possible in a translation, Alexandrian Judaism set itself to soften or transform its ancient scriptures by means of allegoric interpretation. To men who had adopted the principles of Platonism, the history of the Israelites seemed too mean and petty to be divine. By means of allegory, history and law and poetry were made to speak the language of philosophy. Moses and Plato were found to be at one. The great example of this school of allegories is Philo, who found in scripture the same views of the universe which he admired in Plato and Zeno. In Philo, the conception of a word or reason of God became familiar to the Jewish mind. To many literary artifices, the Hellenizing Jews endeavored to give to their sacred history a form which might be attractive to the Gentiles, and in all such works they gave prominence to those portions of their theology which were most in harmony with Hellenic thought. The pure and exalted conception of the one God, messianic hope, faith in a kingdom of God to come, these are the points which made prominent in pseudonymous Christian literature. The second book of Esdras, or Revelation of Ezra, written almost certainly by an Alexandrian Jew, is a proof that Hellenism had not obliterated messianic hopes. That the Gentiles, for the most part, looked with no friendly eye upon the Jews who dwelt among them is evident enough. Still, the words of Psalms and prophets, and the faith of the Jew in his own religion, had power to attract many who were astray in an age of doubt. Women especially found comfort in the services of the synagogue. In the great cities there were always to be found admirers and adherents to the Mosaic ritual. Some were merely curious lookers-on at the Jewish services. Some, more earnest worshippers, had vowed to abstain from certain Gentile practices which the Jew abhorred. Some, the true proselytes, had been admitted by circumcision to the full privileges of the children of Israel. Thus, there was formed in every city a body of men acquainted with the scriptures, who showed by the very fact of their worshipping with a despised race that they were in earnest seeking after God, and who were much less fettered by the bonds of the law than those who were children of Abraham after the flesh. Among these worshipping Gentiles, 
Christianity was in first age found its most numerous and most satisfactory converts. Cornelius of Caesarea is an apt type of the class which formed the great link between the first Jewish preachers of Christianity and the Gentile world. Yet paganism was interwoven with the very structure of society. It was environed by splendid temples, a numerous priesthood, costly festivals, hereditary rites, the strains of poets, the mighty influence of use and want. The old beliefs, and still more, the old customs were not abandoned without a struggle. In many places the rough populace was fanatically attached to the pleasant and stately superstitions of the old religion, while the statesmen wished to maintain, in the interests of the state, the customs which formed the framework of society, and the philosopher very often looked on the old mythology under the twilight glow of Neoplatonic mysticism with a kind of half-believing affection. But there was in the empire a great middle class, swayed neither by the unreasoning fanaticism of the populace, the conservatism of the statesman, nor the illuminism of the philosopher. From this class of traders and artisans, the least conspicuous in public life, the least fettered by social prejudice, were drawn in early time the most valuable converts. These men formed the steadfast men-at-arms of the force which overcame the world. End of chapter 1